Hi, I'm Rajoshi Dash and you're listening to Chronos and Storytelling in India. I'm so excited to have today with us Shanton Dotto, who is a queer trans science writer, communicator, and journalist who writes about science, gender, sexuality, caste, and health. Currently, Shanton is a faculty teaching associate in the Center for Writing and Pedagogy at Kriya University, Andhra Pradesh where they teach writing and communication to enthusiastic undergraduate students. Shantan is also part of the feminist multimedia science collective, The Life of Science, and have received grants from the National Association for Science Writers, USA, and Transforming Education for Sustainable Futures Project, India. They have published several peer-reviewed papers, including their book chapters, I quote, Finding Homosexuality in the Genome, a critique of genetic investigations on sexuality, uh, which is part of uh, Pushpesh Kumar's uh, volume, Sexuality, Abjection, and Queer Existence in Contemporary India. This just released, I think. Recently, Shantan has also written a children's book, The Plant Whisperer, uh, which is published by the Story Weaver platform of Pratham Books. That's, you know, you are so prolific. How do you, how do you manage to do so much? Uh, I, mean, I mean, firstly, a big hi to everyone who is listening. And I'm so glad you're doing this, Rajoshi. Thank you so much for having me over. The pleasure. Uh, uh, coming to the question of being prolific, to be honest, I don't have much to do in life other than write. So I write and I, I mean, I understand I write quite a lot, uh, but that understanding has come only after people have told me that it looks like I'm writing a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, to be honest, I'm, I'm sure that I'm not the only person who's uh, doing this kind of uh, prolific work in the country. I think there are several other people who are doing a lot of interesting work in their own ways and they have been very prolific. Somebody like Grace Barney, right? I mean, mm-hmm. PIRs after PIRs and hikes and protests after protests and talks after talks. So I think it's a question of how one wants to spend their time. And I think I, I, I feel the most uh, safe and I feel the most comfortable and happy when I'm writing. That's why probably I write so much. And, you know, anybody who writes would know that you publish only probably a quarter or less of what you write. That's essentially what's also true for me. So I mean, write, write a lot more. Most of it doesn't see the light of the day. Some of it does. Um, and yeah, like I said, I actually don't have a lot of other things to do. I just write by myself. I stay by myself with my cat. And somehow I'm very comfortable looking at the screen. Uh, primarily write on the computer. I don't write mm-hmm. pen and paper. And I'm somehow very, very comfortable doing that on the screen. I don't have problems with staring at the screen for very, very long hours. And uh, I don't have problems sitting up. And that essentially uh, is how I translate. Mm-hmm. Plus I think for me, 
uh, you know, bringing together many of my interests has happened through the course of writing. Right? And this is something that as a writing teacher, I also tell my students that I think what, uh, you know, I don't know if I've done it very successfully, but at least partly what I've been able to do is sort of mechanize the process of writing, make it a part of my schedule where I can sit and write for a certain amount of time every day. And I think if somebody is looking to build a career that involves a significant amount of writing, um, and that can be both academic or non-academic, so be it, um, you know, you want to be a researcher uh, or you want to be a journalist, uh, both of which will probably involve you writing significantly more than uh, a lot of other, other career opportunities, then I think uh, one has to sort of start letting go of the desire to you know have that one bingo moment where an idea has come to your mind and then you finally start writing it. I think uh, it helps for people to start mechanizing the process of writing where you can sit with a cup of coffee, uh, you know, whatever is your poison and sit in front of a computer and write 200, 300 words, 500 words every day. Mm-hmm. And most of what one will be writing is trash. We understand that. I don't think there's anybody who writes. Anybody who writes would know that first drafts look really bad or whatever you write for the first time looks really bad. And a significant chunk of what you write doesn't make sense uh, to anybody other than the writer themselves. But mechanizing the process of writing, I think, uh, sometimes helps in, in putting together you know, diverse thoughts at once one has. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that I've been trying to practice over time. And for me, I think writing is also a way of making sense of the world. So, yeah. how does one bring together something if I mean, I'm interested in feminism and being queer in France and lived experiences of being queer in France? And I'm interested in a certain kind of critique of the sciences. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in general uh, workings of the world. And in my mind, the only way I can make sense of these interests together and try to bring together, uh, you know, juxtapose insights from whatever observations of either of these things by putting them on paper and starting to think through uh, these questions. So I think it appears that I'm as prolific, and that's simply because I've recognized the first of writing, and I'm figuring stuff out. Uh, as I write, which is why it has so happened that now when I look back at some of my earlier pieces of writing, um, I either don't like to read them or I don't agree with what has been said there. Uh, mm. and, and I have also made peace with that because you know I was figuring stuff out then, and as I have moved in, I you know I have figured some stuff out which sort of contradicts what I've written now. That's all right. Yeah, because that's a that's a process, right? I think it's always been a process for me. I don't think I mean, you know, there's actually no other way to think of writing other than a process, in my opinion, because the moment you start thinking about writing as a product, then how so what what is the point at which one draws a line and says, This is the best I could have written this piece and I want to send it out. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you can do 200 drafts of the same piece and you'll improve bit by bit, bit by bit, bit by bit, and you'll just keep on improving. I don't think there's any stopping. I mean, 
the editorial and the revision process should help one just constantly improve and super improve their piece. So the moment you start drawing a line before the 200 drafts or some such, right? So when I, I, I do, let's say, five drafts of something, or three drafts of something before it goes out and gets published, and that's when you're taking a conscious choice to say, ki, okay, this is good enough. And the moment you said that this is good enough, what you've essentially done is you said, okay, um, it can be better. It can improve um, as my thoughts improve over time. There's no harm in rewriting version two of a piece, publishing mm-hmm. that later. So I think writing has always been a process, uh, at least for me. So do you so, have, sorry. No, no, I'm, I'm done. So do you have like a different process uh, depending on what, uh, like what is the genre or let's say if you're writing an op-ed and uh-huh. just to a research article or uh, a sh- like the story that you, uh, the book that you publish. So uh-huh. how do you think your approach changes uh, depending on what you're writing? Yeah. And that's a, Great question, and I'm just going to sort of think through uh, that with you. Uh, and I don't know how sensible my answer will be, but I think um, so. You know, I think even if I'm writing an op-ed over time, I've realized, uh, and part of that is simply because uh, you know, I have some background in journalism, which is that I like to do reported work, which essentially means that I'm going to reach out to a bunch of people who I think are experts on something mm-hmm. and do short interviews with them to start with. So I think any piece of writing over the last couple of years, this wasn't through, uh, let's say, five, six years back, but over the last couple of years, any piece of writing that I have done has begun with a series of interviews with people who I deem experts in a particular field, or if it's a biographical piece, then certainly interviewing the person who is being biographed. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and it starts with that interview. And once the interview is done, you know, there's a standard process, you get it transcribed, you transcribe it yourself. And once the transcript is ready, I actually read it a couple of times and start highlighting quotes. So, you know, I mean, this is actually, uh, before I am making an opinion, I'm actually just highlighting quotes that intuitively strike my head as interesting. Mm-hmm. Make me think that okay, this is something that I as a writer would like to talk about in a piece that I write. I start highlighting those quotes. And after that, I think it's a, it, the process changes depending on what I am writing. So if I'm writing a children's book, then I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of the reader of a children's book. Mm-hmm. And the primary audience, and, you know, so adults read children's books all the time and children read children's books. So, so I'm sort of making a conscious choice to decide, okay, okay there are, uh, there's a certain set of audience for children's books that I am going to try and uh, sort of mold my writing to make it more accessible to that certain group of audience. So, um, so somebody who's, let's say, 15-year-old or 13-year-old and somebody who's 14-year-old should both be able to read my children's book and derive their own pleasures out of it. So then the writing changes according to that. Now, if I'm writing for a journalistic platform, you know, a news report, 
post, for example. Then there's this very standard way of writing news reports where, uh, you know, that's essentially how I try to do it. If I'm writing an op-ed and I think as I'm growing older, I'm writing lesser and lesser op-eds. And that's because I've realized it's okay to not have an opinion on everything. Uh, Mm. And certainly uh, that's also because I'm realizing that just because your opinion on something doesn't mean you should go ahead and get it published. Uh, so yeah, but when I'm writing, basically, I think af- after I'm done with my interviews and I'm done with identifying some preliminary work with quotations, I think the next step really is to decide who the audience of the piece is. Mm. And the moment I figure the audience, and I'm not saying that I always figure it out right at the first goal, but once you've figured it out, I think the creative process changes to attune the work more for the audience. And with the piece, audience of the piece is me and nobody else. It's basically something that I'm writing for myself. Then it will look very different from something that goes up at a news media platform. And that will be very different from something that goes up on a comic book. And that will be very different from something that goes up on a children's book. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you explained this so beautifully. And I was just thinking that that's why I started this podcast is to have like different kind of conversations. Mm-hmm. And then intuitively, like, you know, understand how these kind of queer, what kind of queer possibilities are being imagined through these conversations and how that can impact my work. Absolutely. And I'm really glad you started this podcast. I think we all need to, you know, diversify the way we we interact with each other. And see, I think, um, I, I, I mean, to be very honest, I want more and more queer and trans people to leave permanent marks on the world in some sense. And it appears to me over time that getting things digital is the way to go to you know, if it's in, on the internet once, it's there forever. And this can be very simple things. So, you know, queer people photographing things, queer people talking about things, queer people fighting about things, queer people doing anything that they want, actually. Mm-hmm. But leaving a mark for us to interact and learn from each other, because we've been so isolated, um, both pre-pandemic, but definitely more so post pandemic uh, and mm-hmm. by post-pandemic it, this is a post-pandemic without a hyphen like post-colonial not which essentially means I'm not trying to say that the pandemic is over but there is a right. post-pandemic new culture that's emerging but I think what I'm trying to say is that one of the ways that the world oppresses queer and trans people is by isolating us and telling us that our experiences are our experiences alone. Uh, And the more we have stuff like your podcasts or any of the other wonderful stuff that other people people in the world are doing, and when we encounter it independently, I think that's a great reminder for us to know that our experiences are ours, but they are also experiences of the community. They are also experiences of a certain group of people. And I think that is what creates uh, the biggest resistance to system heteronomic ways of living. Mm-hmm. You know, they, the, this entire attempt of being boxed as individuals and 
being isolated from other people who have, who have a certain way of looking at the world, a certain way of being in the world. Mm-hmm. This isolation is... Sorry? No, I mean, I was just going to say I really appreciate how you see writing as something which is collective and therefore whatever we are putting it out, you know, uh-huh. even digital platforms, although I'm not sure if everything is permanent, given that the internet could be, you know, censored. Right. And you never, and of course, not everybody has access to internet. And so many other, like, you know, hierarchies which determine our uh, access uh-huh. to knowledge. But nonetheless, yes, I feel like it's an important platform to have to document conversations and put the, put it just out for anybody yeah. who wants to listen. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, that something like the TikTok ban right, um, in the country. So in India, doesn't use TikTok anymore. The government ban. Oh yeah, I don't, I don't exactly remember when, but I think that was one of the biggest blow to. Some, some kind of community solidarity for me, mm-hmm. community building uh, between queer and trans individuals, especially from working class, marginalized class and class backgrounds that was happening. You know, grassroots mobilization in some sense of the queer and trans community in the country was probably hampered because of the TikTok ban because not only were queer and trans people finding very interesting ways of self-expression on TikTok, Mm-hmm. Which um, I mean, I don't know what was so special about TikTok. I, I mean, I'm not the best person to comment on it. But but what I do know from my my friends who've been working in the grassroots and, uh, is that the TikTok ban harmed this community building effort and this and this effort of putting you know one's voices and expressions out mm-hmm. into the world terribly. And and that's. Of course, concern for me in some sense, right? I mean, there are very few spaces where um, queer and trans voices from the grassroots find space of expression. An expression that's unique, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be writing, kind of singing, dancing, performance of any kind. And then, you know, these voices now can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and, I'm, and I think the lesser we collectivize as queer trans individuals, the bigger risk we put uh, are not only ourselves at, but also, you know, the larger community concerns. Which is why, and, and because you mentioned that writing is a collective process, I think there's just no other way of looking at writing. I'm very militant about thinking about writing as a collective process. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at what goes into writing, you know, of course, there's an element of language and there's an element of thought. Neither of which is, you know, I know, you know, something that arises in an individual de novo, um, you know, just by itself. So, I mean, whatever my thoughts are, are thoughts that, you know, I'm responding to the world essentially. So they are inspired and influenced and motivated by my conversations with other individuals and me reading other individuals, me listening to other individuals. So being in a certain place at a certain point of time. And how I am writing it is also a result of, you know, reading other people, learning how to write, uh, by sort of following how others have written. 
and there are other people involved in the process there are editors involved who are credit my piece there are readers involved who are going to read my piece so i mean writing is one of those activities that happen in isolation most of the time but it's also one of the most collective activities that at least i think uh, you know i can engage in right and actually since you mentioned um tiktok and performance which i think tiktok really made it easy for people to sort of document a performance and sort of circulated uh i was thinking about the role of allyship that i remember you critiqued in an article that you wrote uh quite i think a couple of years back i think it was in the aftermath of the ajar judgment which uh mm-hmm. uh section 377 and i remember you were very critical of this queer pride march that was taken out in your um, mm-hmm. former university presidency mm-hmm. and so do you think that looking back do you think you still have those uh, critiques or do you think that there is a middle ground um that one can um sort of have Uh, because i'm also wondering like uh the way in which uh the trans community especially a working class uh, dalit uh, dalit people sort of are continuously criminalized marginalized is very different from the way in which let's say queer um upper caste savarna people uh, like me um oh. get to access rights So do you think since we are thinking about connections and interactions do you think there is also a possibility of allyship with cis uh people Okay yeah let me try to again you know think through this I don't think my thoughts are very either very stable or very coalesced on this question but so firstly about the presidency prior and the critique of allyship that was generated from there you know I, I don't. My my. I think the crux of that critique was, who is that pride for, mm-hmm. and what does it mean to be proud as queer or trans in a space like presidency? Uh, because you know the three years that I spent in presidency, I don't think I felt proud of being queer or trans at all, and that place was a constant reminder that a certain kind of savarna cis heterosexual. Uh, masculinity gets more social and cultural acceptance than anything else, right? And, and that's essentially it was Brahmin men measuring the size of their dicks in some of the other ways all the time, and that was that was the 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 reminder that presidency constantly reminded me of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when I you know one fine day I'm in university of Hyderabad and I see. I hear that Presidency University Department of English. Very interestingly, they used to call themselves Prude at that point of time. P R U D E. They have organized a Pride March on campus, and I was just thinking, like, what does it mean for queer and trans individuals to who who were or were not uh, in the campus at that point of time to see a Pride March which was led by Citizen heterosexual people on campus. What's the purpose of that? Place? Because the place probably 
at least at that point of time, probably still had very, very few queer and trans people who felt it safe and comfortable to be queer and trans. Yes. I don't think the campus was doing or is doing anything now to sort of bolster these conversations and actually empower and enable queer and trans individuals to, 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 to be safe or be proud in some sense. So, you know, I'm just trying to contextualize that critique of allyship. Yeah. yeah. That's, that I think is, uh, you know, in the, a pride that is uh, very much in conflict with the very cultural ethos of that institution. Uh, is 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 what where my critique was primarily stemming from. I do think allyship is important, but I want to understand what kind of allyship um, you know, is important. So, for example, something like Dalit trans solidarity is something that I've been spending some time thinking about. Uh, partly because of Grace Barnum and her wonderful work that's happening in the country. And I think Living Smile Vidya has also spoken about this. Yeah. Uh, Living Smile Vidya is a Dalit transphobia. Yeah. She's often spoken about how transphobia is a form of feminism. Yeah. Um, she does a podcast, I think. Yeah. And when when Living Smile Vidya did that, so suddenly so many things fell in place for me. Right? So many of my own experiences and experiences that I heard from other trans individuals fall in this place. In there. Then comes Grace Barno, who's talking about Dalit trans solidarities and talking about how it's really important. And I mean, before Grace Barno, I must mention Rohit Ramila protests that happened on the, on the XU. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, for, for the listeners who might not know, Rohit Ramila uh, was a young Dalit man, a scholar in the science department in the University of Hyderabad, who unfortunately died by suicide as a result of. Um, extended caste violence that he faced on campus. And it was during, I think, um, so Rohit was already, you know, talking quite a bit about trans types when Rohit was alive. But when Rohit died is probably the moment when so many trans people came into the campus uh, in protest of Rohit's death, which was also probably one of the very few moments where so many trans people have come into the XC campus. Mm-hmm. Something that we've not been able to do despite the Nalsa judgment and the Transgender Persons Protection of Rights Act, that this big discourse on state sanctioned rights uh, happened because of a different movement in some sense that was happening. And I think that's the kind of allyship that I'm. Um, looking forward to, I'm looking forward to marginalized communities realizing that there's a way in which we can come together without letting go of our unique experiences of marginalization, yet realizing that we are probably in similar locations at the margins mm-hmm. and just speak from there. I think that's the kind of solidarity and allyship that I more interested in these days mm-hmm. because I don't know I mean you know in the sense how does a cis-heterosexual individual for example who might be one of the most uh, you know very very well understanding and very meaning person at the end of the day I, I don't know how that individual is supposed to help me in my movement I want 
cis heterosexual I mean basically non marginalized people and you know non marginalized I'm using the word very loosely in some sense but whatever I mean what I'm essentially trying to say is that allies should realize that their contribution to the movement is for the look very different from our contribution to the movement so they should spend more money for example um, you know thanks to platforms like milap and petro you know i see so many fundraisers from taxi individuals mm-hmm. who are looking for different kinds of support you know somebody is looking for money to access better healthcare somebody is looking for money to build a house somebody is looking for money to do something else to start their own business for example and i was just looking through the contributors of one of these fundraisers yesterday and the names that i could recognize and you know, I, i am not saying i could recognize all the names and i'm not saying um, there were no anonymous contributors there were many anonymous contributors but the names that i could recognize were names of trans people and that was an interesting moment for me to realize that okay so trans people are helping other trans people out mm-hmm. you know i think but my point is in where are the allies what are they to So many university professors who work on gender and sexuality do ethnographies of trans populations. Do you know? I don't know hundred different things. You know, they can write papers and papers on gender and sexuality and drop the word queer at the top of a hat. Where are their names as contributors to these fundraisers? Mm-hmm. Uh, what? Why are they not spending money and helping trans people on the ground? you know build the houses get more education uh, get some kind of employment you know, go fight for them in police stations go fight for them everywhere that you can why is it that these fights are also being led by trans people i mean in the sense uh, what i'm trying to say is that how is it accomplice is that we saying like people need to become accomplice uh i don't know if i'm saying they need to become accomplice all that i'm saying is that allies should put their money where their words are if you're saying that you are an ally to the trans movement uh, trans rights movement and you think trans people uh, you know, deserve equal opportunities and equal space in the world as you are then in that case why don't you contribute to their fundraisers mm-hmm. for example and that's i think the minimum that you should be able to do if you think you're an ally how is it that it is again queer and trans people who are helping other queer and trans people um and you know we i'm glad we are all helping each other because that also helps me realize that this narrative of the trans community being so fractured is a narrative that's such a construction of this masculine heteronormative way of thinking that everything that looks ruptured is essentially fractured and come on we've all existed in our multiplicities i might disagree with you completely rajoshi but at the same time when it comes to you and i facing something that we shouldn't face i'm sure i mean i think the community has always figured it out to leave out all differences and you know come together when required and and you know, generally exist as a as, as a very multiple is a very um unique unique collective right where so many people disagree with each other and yet come together mm-hmm. and this is something that i think non queer people just don't understand how that is possible uh, uh uh 
But but what I'm trying to say is that allies need to put their money where their where their mouth is, and I think uh, I think if you are a good ally, uh, good is in big quotes here, <laughs> then you need to uh, you know I don't know what start by contributing to these fundraisers. I think I mean, if people ask me. A question these days about how do you think we can help the trans community? Yeah, thankfully people don't ask me this question anymore. Um, uh, you know, because earlier every time people tried to ask that, I was so critical that I think I just put them off uh, completely from this question. But if people are listening and they are you know, interested in asking this question once again, I think my easiest response right now is that start by contributing money to these fundraisers. Yeah, literally help trans people build a house. Literally help trans people get care. And even people who have money, they they give like you know like very little. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's so annoying. But I want to tell uh, the list uh, our listeners about your amazing uh, children's book. Which also has this message of uh, standing together and helping mm-hmm. each other. Although I don't really like the word help, but in a way, mm-hmm. this story talks about coexistence, right? Uh, right? Within plant world. So, do you think that this is what in uh, this is what transforming education looks like for you as an educator? You know, I mean, when I wrote that children's book, I don't think. Uh, I was focusing a lot on education, but in retrospect, I think what transforming education looks like to me, um, and I don't know, I mean, again, the question of being an educator is such a recent one that I'm only figuring my role out and I'm still so much caught in my head there. But I think what I want to think is how, what are the ways in which Education can help people collectivize, help people come together, and help people realize that we are not alone. Right? This this narrative of being alone guides my work a lot. Um, and I've just been looking for interesting ways for us to think about ourselves not as individual entities, uh, but as you know, part of a larger collective. Mm-hmm. Or larger collectives, you know, one can be a part of multiple collectives. True. And then to think about what these collectives are and how they look like. So, what does it mean for me to be queer? What does it mean for me to be trans? What does it mean for me to be something else? Um, what does it mean for me to be a writer? What does it mean for me to be a educator? So on and so forth. Uh, and what brings all of these together? Mm-hmm. And you know these are questions that I'm still thinking about. I don't think uh, you know found a lot of answers as of yet. But I'm very, very uh, you know I'm thinking about what is a classroom and how can the classroom be a requiring space. That's that's what I've been thinking. It's an interesting question uh, that you ask because Bell Hooks just passed away mm-hmm. a couple mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. months back, and I was reading uh, Bell Hooks and Stewart Hall uh, for a class. And I just realized it, that, you know, the movements that we see, like, the, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, the moment that you were referring to in University of Hyderabad, where trans groups came into the campus to, mm-hmm. uh, to protest against the institutional murder of um, Rohit Vemuta, mm-hmm. I was thinking that is such an amazing 
moment of uh, pedagogy, right? That is the classroom where you actually see people standing up for each other and uh, because the classroom is political. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, this is something that I also, you know, I think it's a good space to talk about. So, you know, when I was a much younger person, you know, 16, 17, I think so much of my early queer um, experiences and learnings, more importantly, have happened in collective spaces, in, um, you know, uh, these meetings that queer and trans people would organize in Calcutta and the Kolkata queer pride mm-hmm. and the protest marches against the trans bill. And then trans bill now act. Yeah. You know, those are the moments that I have learned, you know, whatever I think being queer and trans means. And these are not things that have happened in gender and sexuality classes. This is not, you know, I have not understood gender and sexuality by reading Judith Butler or any of the other big scholars who read. Mm-hmm. But I have learned these through protest marches. I have learned these through movements, through collective spaces, and by spending some time in the grassroots. Um, and I must confess, I've not done a lot of it, but a little bit. So then, I mean, you know, the queer classroom then is the world in some sense. And any space where you start uh, thinking of your experiences as a part of a larger collective experience is a space that probably becomes a classroom. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, so thanks for mentioning Bell Hooks. I think she's written excellent stuff in and teaching to transgress. Um, but I think, and this is a conversation that I was having yesterday, um, a couple of us are reading teaching to transgress together as a reading group. I'm also understanding, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think about what does it mean not just to teach to transgress, but also to learn to transgress. Right. And it's not something that is an innate thing in us, right? It, we eventually figure out ways of transgressing, um, whatever, but, and we're taught how to transgress by being a part of larger collectives, by being a part of larger movements. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm only starting to think about what does it mean to learn to transgress and how can one learn to transgress? What kind of education helps people learn how to transgress? True. I just saw that we have almost spoken for like 40 minutes. So I want to be respectful of your time and move on to some of these other questions that I also have. Right. Uh, so I was, I haven't read your essay because the book just came out. So, um, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm here in the US. I haven't been able to purchase the book. So can you <coughs> tell us a bit about this essay uh, that you wrote for Pushkrish Kumar's book? And, uh, so I, I because I'm not from STEM and I'm always curious how can queer and trans politics inform STEM or the other way around. So mm-hmm. if you just talk a little bit about your uh, you know about basically what you do as a science writer either through this article or through your work in the life of science. Okay, I'll I'll try to uh, you know start by talking about the article and see what are the gaps uh, that require bringing in other stuff. 
So anyway, I mean, for that article, I mean, I was actually looking at the history of genetics. Uh, so see, I, 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 um, I think one needs to think about uh, before one can think about the article. One needs to think a little bit about where I located myself in STEM in my early days. So I studied biology all my life up to my masters, and then I did a and I joined for a PhD in neuroscience and <clears throat> dropped out, um, quit my PhD uh, in my second year. And as a biologist, there were there were there was a time in my life when I was looking to biology uh, for an explanation of being queer and trans, for trying to find out some kind of basis of being queer and trans. I no longer have that desire, and I'm often very critical of that desire. But uh, that said, there was a moment, and there were there were several such moments early in my life when I was looking for such. Uh, Validation from science in some sense. Mm-hmm. And because I was studying genetics, um, I mean, at least for my PhD, I was in a, in a molecular genetics lab and we were doing a lot of genetics. Um, I tried to start looking into how genetics has taken up the question if it all has. And what that resulted into is both a disenchantment with genetics, but the book chapter eventually where I drew a trajectory of the different kinds of ways that genetics research has looked at homosexuality particularly. And I was very wary of using the term queer and trans mm-hmm. there. Um, but, you know, I mean, essentially a lot of genetic work has happened on homosexuality. And most of it is extremely shoddy. Most of it is extremely, uh, I mean, the gaze is just terrible. And that's essentially some of these insights I brought together as a, um, so I, I did some history and then I tried to theorize from the history about why this kind of history is a violent history. And that was essentially that book chapter. But I think my work within this stem <coughs> is a little larger than that. It's not just to look at histories of science, but also to think about I mean, and as time is passing, I'm thinking more and more about what is the nature and the culture of science and how, what, what does it mean for us to clear science? This is something that I've been thinking about. Um, so, you know, if you look at the lifeofscience.com, it's a famous multimedia science collective. And yeah, it's a beautiful website. I- I'm so glad you're saying that. So early on, I think uh, the lifeofscience.com was a part of the women in STEM movement where it was looking at how can one improve access and visibility of women um, to and in STEM fields? But I think over the last couple of years, the lack of science.com has sort of diversified its perspectives uh, and you know become sort of a more political space, which is also commenting on the larger culture of science in the country. You know, it's highlighting trusteeism, it's highlighting transphobia. Mm-hmm in the sciences, uh, in the way science is done in the country, which is which is fantastic. So yeah, I think that's so essentially these days the way I look at science is to, to think about what science is, what role does it have to play in the lives of queer and trans what makes it such a violent force, and yet the fact that there are so many queer and trans people doing science in the country, and I know this because of some of the fieldwork that I've been mm-hmm. doing for the PSF project, um, what potential does this influx of queer and trans people in science have 
to transform science itself and hopefully make it a more empowering force. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm very early stages of the work. Uh, mm-hmm. so I don't know what insights will eventually emerge. But uh, yeah, um, these are some of the questions that I'm uh, it's interesting that I asked a similar question to uh, Bittu Karthik. Uh, Dr. Bittu mm-hmm. Karthik teaches in Ashoka. Mm-hmm. And that episode should be out anytime now. And uh, Bittu said something very interesting. Bittu said it's also what the movement can learn from science. And specifically from psychology. And mm-hmm. how that can inform our ways of looking at human behavior. So yeah. in a way, it's like, you know, it's like both, uh, it's a, like a, it's not a one-way traffic. It can be both ways. Yeah. That gives me a lot of hope about, you know, the kind of work that a lot of queer scientists, trans scientists are doing in the country or beyond. Yeah, absolutely. I think, so I, I also think that Bittu and I, I mean, Bittu has been a great friend and we've spoken so many times on science before together. Um, and if listeners are interested, they might be willing to look into a podcast that I did with Queer the Star. It's called Queering the Scientific Method, which had Bittu and Ayushita uh, as guests. But I think Bittu and I also come from very different positions in how we look at science, right? And, and well, I'm very happy to think that the movement has a lot to learn from science. For me, it is... You know, there's something in science which is, uh, and I'm, I'm still trying to locate what it is, but appears to me that science can actually, has been a more violent force. And my, my, my thing is that it's not just because there were not queer, enough queer and trans people in science. I mean, of course, that's one important aspect of it. But I think the very nature of science itself has been, you know, it's been constructed, modern science has been constructed in such a way that I don't know how it can not violate queer and trans experiences. Mm-hmm. That said, like I said, the, the, the fact that queer and trans people are coming into science and are transforming science from within is something that makes me very hopeful. But I'm very happy to you know, think more about how the movement can learn from science. It's just that I haven't been able to coalesce those thoughts very well. Yeah. No, I'm just thinking in general how research is extractive and uh, you know, any kind of research usually cannibalizes marginalized people. Mm-hmm. Like you said actually earlier, how people who do research on mm-hmm. trans and queer bodies don't contribute enough. Um, we are almost like, I think, reaching one hour. So I'll quickly ask you this last question. You spoke about uh, isolation earlier. Is this one of the reasons uh, that you, I think, converted to Buddhism, you spoke about it, I think, on Twitter, if I'm not mistaken, uh, mm-hmm. you know, back, have you changed uh, things for you on a spiritual level? Um, so I must first confess that I don't think I'm a practicing Buddhist in the sense that I don't think there are, I mean, I follow a very strict adherence to what a certain kind of Buddhism asks me to do. I, but I did take refuge uh, early on. I think the 2019 is when I, when I took refuge. I took refuge with my partner. And taking that refuge came from you know, very different spaces. A couple of things. One, one is that I wanted to reject Hinduism. 
as soon as possible as, as a religion that I cannot distinguish from violence as a religion that I cannot you know mark as non-violent in any aspect <clears throat> um, so I definitely wanted to do that and I was looking for mental and spiritual peace but I think I think I need to engage more deeply with the result to be able to make the most out of my decision which I don't think I have done but is religion an important part of your, um, I don't know, like queerness, transness, yeah. how important it is? I think, I, I think refusing Hinduism and taking refuge was an important part of you know, the larger queer identity of myself that I'm trying to construct. But whether Buddhism is part of my queerness or not is something that I think I will figure out only when I start engaging with Buddhism more seriously, which I must confess I have not done. I don't know when and how that will happen. Hopefully sometime. Yeah, I think I remember Chintan uh, in the first episode spoke, mm-hmm. like, uh, suggested something about uh, Zen, but mm-hmm. he didn't really um, get to it much. But I know that he also writes sometimes about not used to when he was on social media earlier. So I'm actually curious to know how queer and trans bodies are negotiating with religion. Yeah. It seems that in India specifically, uh, because not just because of the onslaught of the right wing, Hindu right wing, mm-hmm. but also mm-hmm. because of coexistence, um, a certain mm-hmm. kind of violent coexistence, I'm really interested to know how, how uh, people negotiate uh, with their yeah religious and spiritual beliefs and whether it's in contradiction or not or how do they really you know navigate the question uh, yeah so at least yeah so you know on the face of it i don't think my buddhism is at any conflict with my queer and trans identity i think that i have been able to figure out Mm -hmm. as of yet but whether it actively enables my understanding of queerness and transness is something that i'm not as sure and that's simply because I am not practicing Buddhism as much as I would like to or, or I should. Chintan, I think, is some is a great person and you know, such a deep and kind thinker and has engaged with Buddhism for much longer and in much you know, deep ways than I have. So I'm sure Chintan has a lot more to contribute to this discourse than I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should maybe invite both of you to have a dialogue. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll be happy to be a participant, and you know, but probably I'll be quiet for the most part because Chinta is such a kind speaker. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Shantun, um, for doing this. And I know you just recovered from COVID. Yeah, I wish I had known this before. I would have postponed. Uh, no, this has been wonderful, Rajoshi. I'm, I'm so happy that I could do this. Yeah. Uh-huh. Thank you so much, and I'll I'll let you know when this is done and the editing is done. Sure, absolutely. Bye bye, and go have your bye. breakfast. <laughs>